In recent years, misrepresentations related to human reproduction have been used to impede access to contraception and to support abortion restrictions. Under the Trump administration, controversial figures who have spent their careers promoting alternative science will now be in charge of shaping federal programs for family planning. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alta Sharo, a professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor Sharo has written a perspective article about recent Trump appointees and their views on human reproduction and contraception. Professor Sharo, you write in your article that recent executive branch appointees, such as the new Deputy Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Population Affairs, Teresa Manning, have views on contraception that aren't informed by sound science. So how have the scientific and medical communities responded to these appointments? Unfortunately, I've not seen the kind of outcry one might expect from the general medical community. Certainly, the women's health community has, in fact, responded. We've seen good research coming out of the Alan Guttmacher Institute in New York. We've seen multiple calls for action from Planned Parenthood and from the Society for Women's Health, but we've not seen, as far as I know, the kind of outcry from the American Medical Association that we might have expected in light of appointments that really don't follow where the best medical evidence goes. The new appointees believe, for, for instance, that popular contraceptives are ineffective at preventing pregnancy and can cause infertility, and that condoms don't protect against sexually transmitted infections. So where do these theories come from, and what's allowed them to be perpetuated? Most of the time, the conversation begins by comparing contraception to absolute abstinence. And of course, it is true that nothing is going to protect you from a sexually transmitted infection more effectively than never having a sexual encounter. But we can't count on that. This kind of reasoning embeds within it an unrealistic notion about human behavior as it is, in fact, been experienced, not only among teenagers, but among adults. So this is really a kind of disingenuous comparison. What we need to be looking at is, given the normal patterns of sexual activity among adults and among teens, what is, in fact, the most effective way to prevent sexually transmitted infections, unintended and unwanted pregnancies? And there, the data is absolutely clear that condoms are tremendously effective, but even more effective would be certain forms of hormonal contraception when it comes to preventing pregnancy. And when it comes to sexually transmitted infections, condoms are, of course, our best protection. So another HHS appointee, Valerie Huber, was the head of an organization that asserts a causal connection between abstinence-only sex education and a reduction in poverty. So where in the country are schools still relying on abstinence-only education, and what's the effect been? Actually, we find it throughout the country because for many years we had federal funding that required abstinence-only education as a key part of the school system's programming. And, of course, as we know, school districts are handled very locally, so you're going to find this scattered. But particularly, you'll find this kind of approach in some of the more conservative parts of the United States. One of the things that is picked up on a lot of studies about abstinence-only education is that it tends to work for people who are going to be abstinent anyway. So people who come from households or communities where sex is something that is unlikely to occur prior to marriage, or at least has a long delay, are the same people who are also receiving abstinence-only education. And so what you get is a kind of study that conflates the underlying preference of this population with the effectiveness of the education. When you look at it, however, across populations where sexual initiation is earlier, or at least is premarital, 
what you find is that abstinence only doesn't work. In fact, quite unintendedly, I think, I hope, the effect of it is not to stop the sexual activity from occurring, but to stop people from taking precautions against sexually transmitted infections or pregnancy because they never really are willing to anticipate the fact they'll have sex and therefore never take the kind of precautions you need to take in advance. You also talk in your article about attempts by state legislatures to redefine pregnancy dating and to legitimize misapprehensions about when a fetus can feel pain. How successful have those efforts been? I'd say, unfortunately, they've been tremendously successful. The debate around the experience of pain has been going on now for decades, and it has been consistently confused by linking certain kinds of automatic functions where you have a reflex reaction to a stimulus with the actual experience of pain, which requires a higher level of neurological capacity and also includes not just the actual sensation, but also a kind of emotional evaluation of the sensation as unpleasant. That's what distinguishes pain from other kinds of touches. And so starting back in the 1970s with the so-called silent screen film, we've had attempts to show that the very early stages of fetal development are also stages at which the entity is able to actually feel and be distressed by pain, and it's simply misleading. But this has been touted now for 40 years, and as a result, we still have the same debates going on now, even though the neurology community and the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has clearly said over and over that it's not until much later in development that you have all the things necessary in terms of neurological development to make pain a real factor. You also talk about conscience clauses that allow, for example, clinicians to refuse to prescribe some types of contraceptives because they oppose abortion. In fact, how common are such refusals by clinicians? There are dozens of states that have passed some kind of conscience restriction. In fact, almost every state has one with regard to abortion in particular. And so the real problem here has been where the definition of abortion has been extended, not by the medical community, but by individuals to encompass ordinary forms of contraception. And they do this by now calling anything that interferes with the implantation of a fertilized egg a form of abortion, even though abortion has long been defined instead as the interruption of an ongoing pregnancy. Pregnancy begins after the implantation, not with the simple fertilization of a single cell. And so by subtly changing the definition of abortion per one's own individual views, one can change contraception into abortion and now take advantage of these very widespread clauses that date back to the immediate years right after Roe versus Wade. But in addition, as I was saying, dozens of states have also passed various laws that would permit in professionals to refuse not only to provide true contraceptives, but also to refuse to even provide information and referrals for patients who come with a legitimate request. This includes physicians and nurses as well as physicians. So notwithstanding all of this, under the Affordable Care Act, many American women gained easier access to contraception. Did its use expand greatly? And what do you expect is going to happen to contraceptive use under the Trump administration? It did expand quite a lot, as a matter of fact. And in particular, it expanded with regard to the high upfront cost contraceptives. So, for example, long-acting reversible contraceptives, so-called LARCs, like the intrauterine device or the implantables, can often have an upfront cost in the hundreds of dollars, upward of $1,000, and so are truly out of reach for most people who don't have that kind of cash on hand. But with the advent of coverage for those, we've seen a tremendous rise 
in the number of people choosing those. And that has several advantages. One, it reduces the strain on the medical system because it doesn't require repeat visits for repeat prescriptions of something like a birth control pill. Second, it has a very high effectiveness rate because it gets us away from the problem of failure to remember to take a pill or other kinds of user failures. And so has a dramatic effect on reducing the incidence of unintended and unwanted pregnancy. Colorado actually preceded the ACA in making it easier to get LARCs and was one of the first states to show this dramatic increase in pregnancy prevention for people that were trying to avoid pregnancy for the moment. Finally, what can individual physicians and scientists do to ensure that mistaken beliefs about the harmful effects of birth control, including those based on flawed, fraudulent, or or misrepresented studies, don't continue to affect policy? That is, of course, the million-dollar question, because we are overwhelmed these days by diverse sources of information with very little control over the quality of it. And that includes the Internet with its blogs and its newsletters and its anecdotal stories, as well as the more outrageous form of misinformation that is government-mandated misinformation, which we see not only at the federal level, by the way, but across the United States with state legislatures forcing doctors to recite scripts about the risks of these kinds of contraceptives or even about abortion filled with information that legislators know is false but nonetheless mandate the doctors to recite. I think that the medical community can only do a few things while we try to work on this more at a cultural and political level. Number one, physicians need to continue to resist those scripts and to insist that no matter what the law says they must say, that they follow it up with accurate information for the patient. That is, on a one-to-one basis, make sure that no matter what, they do get good information to their patients. The second is to constantly be writing letters to the editor, to the newspapers, and calling into the TV stations and getting in touch with their representatives in the state and federal legislatures and correcting things every time they see misinformation put forward and complaining about the appointees. But most importantly, perhaps, I think we really need the state medical societies to step up and join with the federal medical organizations and produce fact sheets that provide a credible source of information for journalists, and for interested legislators. The ACOG did do such a thing on issues like fetal pain, and it's tremendously helpful for anybody who wants to find the information. That's the first step. At least make the information as easy to find as the false stories that are being put out there. Thank you, Professor Sharo.